Hello and welcome to Business Bites. Uh, I'm Jonathan Burr and um, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. My podcast seeks to make the world of business, economics, finance, and investing a little less mysterious, a little easier to understand. And um, one of the things I'd like to do is talk to entrepreneurs, um, find out what makes them tick, find out what made them want to risk it all on making their dreams come true. And you, you learn a lot from talking to these people. Um, Today's guest is no exception. His name is Rob Brandigy. He's the CEO of Little Earth Productions uh, and it's a, a maker of, 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 of apparel geared towards the female sports fan. And, you know, Rob has a lot of interesting things to say. We talked, we talked about a lot of topics, including such sexy, sexy things as inventory control, which, as anyone knows, is a very critical but very unglamorous thing that you have to do to be a successful entrepreneur. Um, we talked a lot how businesses evolve and change, change over time. You know, Little Earth started off making uh, very cool items made out of recyclable, recycled material, repurposed material like license plates, and it, it had to evolve because if you don't evolve, you don't last. Um, and uh, we, we, he, he had a lot of interesting. He, he had some interesting insights in, in what it's like to work with your spouse and how you know, his wife is Ava is a is a co, is a co-founder of the company with him. And how they keep their uh, personal and professional lives separate. Um, anyway, it's an interesting show, uh, interesting episode, interesting discussion. Uh, a little word about the recording. I was stupid. I didn't hit the record button at first, and uh, so the the conversation starts off a little awkwardly, but it works out from there. Um, appreciate your patience. Any feedback is welcome at jdburr at gmail.com. And now on with Rob Brandigy. A sales like you know. Pittsburgh Steelers. And of course, I draw that example because I'm here in Pittsburgh and I'm a huge fan. Not to mention, I also make the terrible towel for the Steelers as well. Um, but by and large, the other teams that are not in, made, in necessarily very strong markets, if they're winning, they're selling. If they're not, they're nowhere to be seen. Okay. Um, that sounds like you have to have a lot of inventory. How do you, how do you manage that? Um, you do. And uh, the way we do manage it is by making what we call neutral products. So, for instance, I have this amazingly cool women's military shirt that we're making. Uh, and I bring in the shirt with some of the patches already attached on the sleeves and etc. But the patches that notate the particular team or the city are then applied here in Pittsburgh. That way... I can decorate that product very quickly and offer it to the team, uh, and I don't have to carry, you know, every single team in something that otherwise is very expensive. So that's what, that's what allows to, us to flatten our inventory and kind of keep it to the to the bare minimum. That said, we still have a lot of inventory, but we have the opportunity to use it up over many teams, if you will. Okay, uh, you mentioned the terrible tale. I was at, I actually went to Pitt for two years, and I remember hearing Myron. Yeah, I remember hearing Myron Cope, who's a sportscaster in Pittsburgh, talk about the ter terrible, the terrible tale. I mean, is that? Yeah, how did you get the license to do that? Because I know I understand it. I thought Myron Cope invented that. Did you get it from his family? He did. He, he did. Um, and uh, well, it, it's uh, it makes a lot of 
we have a license with the NFL, and we make a lot of products for the Steelers. And we became very, you know, kind of familiar. We, we knew each other. And in order to be able to make the terrible towel, you need to have a license with the NFL and the Steelers as well as work with the Steelers. So, you know, and I should say um, Allegheny Valley School, that is the charity that receives the proceeds of the sales for the royalties of the terrible town. So because we knew the Steelers, because we also had a license, and because we were in Pittsburgh, it made ultimate sense to have a Pittsburgh company supplying the terrible town. So that's when it was moved to us, I want to say, three or four years ago. It actually used to be made made in, um, of all places, Wisconsin. And so inevitably, whenever the Steelers would go to the uh, playoffs or possibly the Super Bowl, there would be one negative, uh, you know, uh, article that says, why is, is Pittsburgh's terrible towel being made in, close to the Packers? Um, so they were always looking for the right partner. It only became available and made sense about four years ago, and then it was moved to us. And we've been supporting that program ever since. We love it. It's it's a great charity. It does a lot of really good things. I mean, Allegheny Valley School is amazing. Oh. Uh, the services they provide for, I, 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 for their uh, patients. Could you do me a favor and walk me through this? You know, you mentioned that you started in, you know, you started in the garage. You know, unfortunately, I screwed up the recording of that, so I didn't get that part. So I need to just clear, just 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 walk me through that and how you got from the garage. How long it took you to get from the garage? To, uh, to 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 a real business. I mean, it didn't happen overnight, obviously. I mean, uh, and uh, wh- wh- where did you go from the? What was your first step? You know, how long were you in the garage? And what? what how, take me through the step by step process and how you how you built the business. Because I think it'd be useful to other to to our, to our listeners to to, to talk about sure. that. Because you, you can you can easily screw something like that up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, well, I mean. Essentially, uh, after I wrote the business plan at the University of Pittsburgh, um, I was, uh, I don't know, I must have been in my sophomore year at that point, and I realized that um, you know, I just wasn't cut out for college, and uh, I, I wasn't terribly concerned about graduating, and I was really much more interested in pursuing a business. I always had done entrepreneurial things of one course or another, so I basically took the business plan. Um, uh, borrowed uh, about ten grand from my parents, a clawfoot tub, and uh, started making um, our bags, inner tube rubber bags, and the purses and the bottle cap belts, etc. Literally in the basement of my house. Uh, we went to a trade show. Within a month of making our first round of samples, and literally we came back with about uh, fifty grand worth of orders. I couldn't find anyone to make the product for us. So we just had to figure it out and make it ourselves. We bought some industrial sewing machines, some rivers, etc. And uh, literally, the first year, I think our total sales were like ninety thousand uh, dollars. Next year, um, we went to more trade shows, had more production people in our basement, and uh, we did half a million dollars. And in that year, I'd say halfway through it, um, we were politely invited by our uh, neighbors uh, over for tea. And long story short, they said, hey, listen, if the UPS truck parks us in one more time, we're going to lose our minds. <laughs> You've got to move somewhere else. So um, I, you know, just 
basically hopped in the truck and drove around and probably 10 minutes into my search, I'm not kidding, I, I pulled up next to a large building um, in the Hill District, uh, right on Fifth Avenue. And uh, the sign just said to me, um, there is a deal to be had. So I, I called, he came over and I said, listen, we're in a startup, we're doing this. If you could allow me to uh, rent this on the cheap, if we could do a scaled lease. And he literally, I think he, I think he was giving me the 10,000 square foot building for like, I don't know, 400 bucks a month. And then it scaled up to, by the end, in the second or the third year, it was his traditional rent. Um, and uh, it worked wonderfully. I, I stayed there for about 16 years. Um, and at the height, you know, in that building and another building that I, I subsequently rented from him that was right next door, at, you know, we had, at the most, at one point we had 100 employees making product. Um and that was kind of when we were at the height. And at that point, I'd say at year three, we hit about $3 million. Um, and that's when we were on Oprah and, and all these other things. And so that business went through a lot of different iterations. But to answer your question, it grew pretty quickly. Um, and it grew according to our business plan. I mean, our plan was roughly those numbers, and we hit them each year. I'm not sure if that happens often. I, I would think it doesn't. But yeah, but but that's it's it's interesting. Um, uh, how did you come up with the idea for the first you know for to recycle stuff? Um, you know, the, I know the, the license. I remember the license plate handbag. Uh, um, the license plate um, pr uh, purses. Uh, purses. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw them on South Street somewhere. Um, I I remember seeing them around. Uh, yeah, how, is, it was there. Was there like a serendipity? That, did you like? Were you were you a crafty guy to begin with? How did you come up with? How did you get so, it? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I uh, how do I say this? I can find. I can see what products want to be, but I'm about as handy as you know, as as I as I uh, was good at uh, being in school. Um, I just. Uh, you know, I, how do I say this? I, I saw some products when I was writing the business plan that people were making out of post-consumer materials, and I thought, wow, that's really creative. I like it. It's a little crunchy granola for me. I bet you could do this and make it a hip boutique item, and that's what gave me the idea. So I started looking at kind of everyday materials, and what I realized was there were a lot of inner tubes in the world, there were a lot of bottle caps and there were a lot of license plates. And the one thing about license plates is they had a they have they had and they have a really intrinsic quality. They they speak to who you are, where you come from, where you're going to, where you'd like to be. It's just a lot they're loaded with meaning. They're also happen to be overproduced, um, built really well. They're, they've got this three M reflective sheeting and all these materials in it and technology to make them Actually, super strong, bulletproof, look great, can hold up under sun. So they just had all this great kind of uh, quality to them. And so when I started looking at the license plate, you know, the first thing I did was I bent it in a U and I looked at it and I said, oh my gosh, this is a perfect little journal. So our first product was this little license plate journal. And it just, you know, we took it to a trade show and we sold tons of them. And, uh, you know, I was looking at the license plates that year and I, 
decided that we, what if we wrapped around little hut gaps and made a little cylindrical purse? And, you know, we took that to a show. And that, frankly, the first one we made, they were actually tuna cans on the ends. And I remember t- taking them to the train show. And literally, the purses smelled like tuna. <laughs> it's amazing that we sold any, really, frankly. But yeah. uh, they became a huge seller. And we actually converted the tuna can to a cool little golf uh, hubcap. And they became quite beautiful little metal purses that people loved. So it was just kind of constantly refining and finishing the product was really what we did. Are you un-Amazonable? Do you know what that, you know what that means? Is your, you know, what's stopping Amazon from, or, or, or uh, I don't know, some, some big, some big, uh, uh, big apparel maker or, uh, or, or, or another bigger, bigger company from getting into your business? Oh, what is the barrier of entry? Well, yeah. um, I will say there, there are a number of things. I mean, obviously, um, the license itself is without a question the biggest barrier. Uh, the licenses are actually difficult to get. You usually have to spend a lot of money um, to secure them, and you really have to have a capacity and meaningful distribution and demonstrate you know, the ability to create consistently great products. So though that sounds kind of easy, it's not. And, um, I mean, for instance, the NFL, I think, has roughly 125 or 150 licensees. So it's a very small community, and we all know each other. So if a big player wants to get into it, they can, and they could certainly either buy a smaller company that has the licenses, if they, I guess, if they're so inclined. Uh, but ultimately, the league has to approve that stuff. So at the end of the day, like all things, it comes down to relationships and to you know, demonstrated capacity and dependability. You have any interest in going public? No. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I thought that, uh, if I thought that we had something that merited that kind of scale, um, sure, I'd get after it. But, um, you know, for us, uh, we are happy being a good, well-run, profitable company on our own terms. Um, it's one of the few, you know, things you can kind of choose in life and have total autonomy and control over. I mean, would I entertain offers? Absolutely, any day of the week. As a matter of fact, I had some DC in here a couple of hours ago that were talking to me about some opportunities, and so I'm always willing to look at stuff. It's just a question of if it's the right, you know, the right kind of partnership and a vision and a plan that everyone actually says, "Yes, this is great. Let's do it." Now, do you still sell those license plate uh, items, or are you strictly on the NFL, uh, on, on, on sports-related stuff now? Yeah, we are strictly licensed sports. And, you know, that's one of the things that I always tell, um, you know, kind of uh, new entrepreneurs or people that are looking for advice is that, uh, you know, really, your business rarely ends up being what you originally planned it to be, either as a need of change in the market, you have to evolve and change quickly to satisfy whatever it is or is not happening at the time. Or you just get an opportunity that's so much better that you kind of move to that. And for us, realistically, I think we've reinvented our company about two or three times in the last 23 years where other people that, you know, have been in our industry for years just went out of business. So, is, you know, is, is, out there. is the NFL your largest business line? 
the NFL is the stir that straws the drink for licensed sports. So I thought the uh, the volume is really meaningful there. It's actually, the volume is meaningful in most of the leagues, but you know, NFL is far and away the biggest. Which uh, you know, I, the sports leagues have for a long time taken female fans for granted. And uh, is there anyone? Are there any of them that are doing a particularly good job of trying to court that market, or are any of them doing a particularly bad? Yeah, job? you know. Yeah, really. Uh, it you know it doesn't. Uh, I'm sure it's not surprising. It is the NFL. The NFL has, without a question, been the most aggressive at recognizing um, how important the female fan is first, and really continually, you know, developing product for that fan. I mean, she really is kind of the nexus of the family. She um, is the woman that, you know, when you're dating, she watches the team with you. I guess, to appease you if you are a big fan and she's not. And, you know, within three or four games, she's a fan before she knows that she's buying product. And then, say, you know, you're married and uh, she buys stuff for him as a gift or for herself. And before you know it, maybe they're having kids and they're buying product for their kids and or other family members. And at almost all these points, she's making the buying decision. And she tends to be a little more fashionable. So, really at the end of the day, there are more retail opportunities for the female fan than there are for the male fan. Interesting. Uh, do, you, uh, do you sell any, you're strictly selling, have you thought about selling products for kids or for, you know, for fashionable men uh, or are you strictly, is, is, is your niche the, the female fan? It really is about the female fan. I will say as a guy, I occasionally make products for men too simply because I can't help myself and I want to make something cool for me so for instance we're doing a very cool line of vintage uh, bowling shirts you know with uh, chain stitch um, embroidery and logos really cool and uh, so that's that's for us but by and large it's really about the, the female fan got it uh, you thought about going into the kids market you know kids are tough uh, kids kids product is difficult because um, with the licensing fees and the structure, it has a high cost, but people are not really comfortable spending a lot of money on kids' products that they're going to grow out of so quickly. Yeah, so I've often looked at it and chosen not to pursue it. Now, does your wife, Ava, work with you? She does, yeah. Okay, what's the secret of working with your spouse and not wanting to kill them? Oh my gosh. Okay, the, the secret of uh, working with your spouse is have a good shrink. We literally see a shrink uh, once a week to deal with and mediate issues in the business. Um, and we also have rules about not talking about work after a certain time at night. We don't uh, talk about it in front of our kids. Um, and we also have a very clear delineation uh, between what each of us does. So for instance... My wife, who frankly is much smarter than I am, <laughs> she handles operations. So she she oversees uh, the purchasing department and accounting, um, and she handles our banking relationship. She does just the, the what we call the inward-facing part of the company. I'm the outward-facing. I do product development and sales, and I uh, just kind of, you know, I would be handling like, for instance, this this conversation that we're having right now, a PR and marketing opportunity, I'm the person that would talk with the interviewer. So it, it, when you have that kind of clear line where 
the other can contribute, but at the end of the day, that person has the ultimate say, it really saves a lot of stress and anxiety. That's how we work together. Okay. Uh, is there uh, any big mistake that you, uh, any big, re- any regrets or mistakes that you made that, 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 that more than... <laughs> You know what, really, the question would be, uh, is there anything that I don't regret? And uh, no, I mean, it's the, our business is littered with regret and, you know, things I'm really proud of and happy about. So I think, I think that you just have to be pretty resilient and allow yourself, give yourself a little credit uh, when things don't go the way you'd hoped they would or they planned or you acted badly and you didn't do what you should have or whatever. Um, you know, at one point, it's funny because at one point, uh, probably about eight years into the business, a, a, a larger local company here in Pittsburgh wanted to buy us. And I, at that time, foolishly thought that we were worth a lot more money than we were. And I went through probably six years of what I would call the desert in our business where it was just very difficult. And industry was changing, people were going out of business. We were just fighting to stay alive the whole time. And I remember throughout those six years, I just regretted endlessly not having sold, but at the same time, at least I was in control of my own destiny. And now in retrospect that I'm where I am now, I don't regret it at all. So it's one of those things that I guess regret and happiness are kind of a moving target, if you will. Any interest in going on Shark Tank? You know, that's funny. I, I uh, yes and no. I mean, I'm intrigued by that idea. I think it's kind of cool. Um, but at the same time, when I, when I see it overall, the structure of it, it just doesn't seem very forgiving or real. And so I'd have a hard time doing it and feeling like it would actually make sense. And also, from what I've seen of the show, I don't think we're the right scale for it. I don't know if they invest in businesses our size. They always seem to be uh, smaller, frankly. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I will say I enjoy the show, and I do watch it. And I also watch The Profit. Those two shows, I think, are, are hilarious and a lot of fun. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. You know, I have a son who wants to be an entrepreneur. He wants to start his own line of cars. I'm trying to get him to think smaller, but yeah, he wants to be the next Elon Musk. I don't know. Anyway, it's been nice talking to you, Rob. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, I just got to say, uh, if you're, you said your son wants to be the next Elon Musk. I think that's awesome. Now, that's the kind of that's the kind of uh, you know thing you want your kid to aspire to. I mean, that's I, I think of all the entrepreneurs I've seen in the last you know I don't know decade or so, I am fascinated by the guy. I think that guy is a genius, and I love his approach. So I think that's super cool. If your son is is about that. I couldn't think of a better role model that he'd be interested in following. Anyway, that's just my two cents. I, I have two daughters, and I can relate to the whole kid thing and what they're thinking and where they're going. So it was. Not, thanks for your time, buddy. Oh, my pleasure. Good uh, talking with you. Hey, b- take care. Bye bye.